Today on Something You Should Know, what kind of gas do you put in your car? I'll tell you why it matters. Then, understanding the concept of infinite games and how so much of your life is not about winning. We are actually players in infinite games every day of our lives, whether we know it or not. There's no such thing as winning in your marriage. Uh, there's no such thing as winning global politics. Nobody is declared the winner of career. And definitely, there's no such thing as winning business. Also, why the less you handle cash, the better for your health. And some refreshing advice for parents in the 21st century. The number of times somebody sits in my office and says, I can't stand to see my kid unhappy, my answer is always the same, which is, you're in the wrong profession. You have got to be able to tolerate your child being unhappy, because how else are they going to learn that it's not the end of the world? All this today on Something You Should Know. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to episode 380 of Something You Should Know. And I mention that to highlight the fact that there are a lot of previous episodes. And if you haven't heard them all... I invite you to go back and give a listen. They're right there. Wherever you're listening to this, all the episodes, or at least the last 300 episodes, are listed. First up today, we're going to talk about gasoline. I think there's a general belief that gasoline is gasoline, and that all brands are pretty much the same, and cheaper is better. But automotive technician Pamela Oak says that's not so. A while ago, top automakers met with petroleum companies and basically said, for our cars to get the best miles per gallon and to reduce emissions, we need a gasoline with this specific formula. Several gasoline brands stepped up to the plate and met those standards. Others did not, or have not yet. In tests, cars running on gasoline with that formula get three to four miles per gallon more than other gasolines. Those gasoline brands are designated as top-tier gasolines. To find out which gasolines are in that group, go to toptiergas.com. That's toptiergas.com. We'll put that in the show notes as well. You might be surprised to find that your favorite gasoline is not yet on that list. And that is something you should know. You are about to look at your life differently in a way you have never really thought of before, most likely. But once you hear this, it's going to make you think. And it's all about the difference between finite games and infinite games. And (laughs) rather than me trying to explain it to you, let me introduce to you Simon Sinek. Simon is a speaker and author of several books, and his latest is called The Infinite Game. Hey, Simon. Welcome. Hey, how are you? So explain what you mean by the infinite game and finite games and infinite games and what the difference is and why this is all worth talking about. In 1986, a theologian and philosopher named James Carse theorized these two kinds of games, finite games and infinite games. A finite game is defined as known players, fixed rules, and an agreed-upon objective. Football, baseball. There's always a beginning, middle, and end, and if there's a winner, there has to be a loser. And there are infinite games. Infinite games are defined as known and unknown players, which means a new player can join at any time. The rules are changeable, which means we can play however we want. And the objective is to perpetuate the game, to stay in the game as long as possible. 
there's no such thing as winning an infinite game because there's no finish line. Uh, eventually what happens is a player drops out of the game because they run out of the will or the resources to play. That's about the best we can ever do. But we are actually players in infinite games every day of our lives, whether we know it or not. There's no such thing as winning in your marriage. Uh, there's no such thing as winning global politics. Nobody is declared the winner of career. And definitely, there's no such thing as winning business. But if we listen to so many leaders, they talk about being number one, being the best, or beating their competition. Based on what? Based upon what agreed upon metrics, objectives, or timeframes. And the problem is, is when we play with a finite mindset in an infinite game, when we play to win in a game that has no finish line, there's a few very predictable and consistent outcomes. The decline of trust, the decline of cooperation, and the decline of innovation. But it would seem that even if you're in an infinite game trying to play by the finite rules, uh, you know, beating your competition or being number one, yeah, you're not always going to be number one, but why not strive to be it all the time, even if you won't always be it? What does it mean to be number one? What does it mean to have the number one podcast? What does that even mean? Does it mean you make the most money? Does it mean you have the best, the, the, the most listeners? Does it mean you have the most engagement? Does it mean the people who listen are the kinds of people you want to listen? Like, what does it mean to have the number one podcast? What does that even mean? So you're striving to be number one with, uh, with a set of metrics that, that you decide. So there's nothing wrong with the finite game. The infinite game is not the absence of the finite game. It's the context within which it exists. So think of it less like a game like football or baseball and think of it more like a lifestyle, like exercise. Like you can absolutely have uh, uh, goals and, uh, and timeframes in exercise. You want to lose X amount of weight by X date. And goals are fantastic. They're easy to measure. You can feel the, the progress. And if you hit your goal, you feel great. But what happens if you miss your goal in, in, in your exercise? Nothing. Nothing happens. In fact, you might hit your goal a month or two later. Um, and you're still way healthier now than you were before. Um, uh, and the worst part about it is even if you do hit your goal, you have to keep doing the exercise for the rest of your life. It's a set of practices. And what I, want to, uh, what, I, what I learned is that becoming obsessed with the practices that make a great business, for example, are more important than whether you're number one in an arbitrary time frame with arbitrary metrics. Okay. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And the exercise example is, a, is an excellent example because you're right. No matter what, you're still better off than if you didn't do it at all. And you may, you may get there two months later and no harm, no foul. Exactly. And, and if you think about how many businesses set out with these, what they call vision, but it's not really, it's just a bold goal, you know, you know, to you know, be a billion dollar business. Well, what happens if you reach that goal? What, you know, to be number one, okay, what happens if that happens? What happens if you are number one based on whatever metrics you want to choose? Do you close the business? Goal achieved? Or do you play defense for the rest of your life? <laughs> yeah, that'd be funny. Yeah, we made a billion dollars. We're closing up shop. Exactly. That was our goal. That was our vision. So now we're done. And so what are we supposed to do with this? I mean, it's interesting to distinguish the difference between finite and infinite games and how it applies to business and, and all. But, but then what do we do with it? Well, I mean, again, this is not just about business. This is about all kinds of things in our lives, our relationships. You know, when, when we try and one-up each other in our relationships um, or friendships, when we're competitive with our friends, you know, this doesn't go a long way to helping build trust amongst, amongst our friends. So what I've tried to do is, is lay out a series of practices that we can all uh, learn to help us um, live healthier uh, lives within this infinite game, within all these infinite games that we're players. You know, many of us have careers. We still go to work. 
You're never going to be declared the winner of your career. And being number one, again, based on what? Rank or salary or how much people respect you. Um, and so those, those things are about having a just cause. In other words, waking up every day to advance something bigger than ourselves, uh, that, that there's more to it than just us. Um, building trusting teams, ensuring that the people we work with or our friends, uh, that we give them a safe space to be themselves, that they do trust us and we trust them back. Uh, having worthy rivals, abandoning this idea that other people uh, in the game are competitors. Competitors are there to be beaten, but rather rivals whose strengths can reveal to us our own weaknesses. They're good at things. They're better at things than we are. So instead of hating them or being insecure about it, to channel that energy to try and improve ourselves, which ultimately is what the infinite game is all about. It's a game of self-improvement. That's ultimately what it is. Uh, the idea of being able to make an existential flex to change the path we're on because we find a better way to advance our cause and ultimately having the courage to do all these things. So many of the pressures on us, both at work and in our families, so many of the pressures on us are to play the finite game. Um, our, our, our guidance counselors and our teachers and our parents are telling us we always have to be the best. Uh, you know, our, our incentive structures in our companies are usually based on short-term arbitrary numbers. Uh, and so it takes a lot of courage to, to play in the infinite game with an infinite mindset. Understood. But what's wrong with rewarding people in the short term? Because often rewards in the short term will lead to long term improvement. Well, that's not a that's not a true statement. I mean, there's nothing wrong with incentivizing people in the short term, as long as it's balanced off with incentivizing people to advance the greater good and advance something long term. Also, too many of our incentive structures are out of balance. They only incentivize short term at the expense of the long term. And we see what happens. We've seen it in, 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 in business. We've seen it in politics. We're looking at, look what's happening with Boeing right now. Um, that's all based on finite thinking. We've seen it in healthcare, where pharmaceutical companies will raise the price of an essential drug a thousand percent because somebody got bonus to make a stock price hit a certain number by a certain date. And yet these things do tremendous long-term damage both to the organizations, the products, and their customers. Those are extreme examples. But uh, those kinds of scenarios exist inside companies every single day. So what does it take to shift to what you're talking about? I mean, do you just decide, let's stop doing that and do this? Well, it's about finding balance. Um, it's about embracing uh, the infinite mindset. First of all, we have to understand the game we're in. You know, we, we can't, not all games are infinite. Some games are finite. Um, and, and sometimes the finite games are contained within the infinite game. So, for example, somebody who works for an airline and their job is to make sure the plane leaves on time, that is finite. There's a beginning, middle, and end. <laughs> and, and we can measure the progress, and we want them to be really good at that finite game. But they have to understand there's a context within that finite game exists. In other words, they can't yell and scream at customers so they can get the, the, the plane off on time, even though that's what their job is. They have to be nice to people, and there still has to be customer service because they have a vision for the fact that they want customers to keep coming back for the long-term benefit of the company. Um, uh, and, and sometimes they have to sacrifice the short term. Some, sometimes they have to do right by the customer, even if, even, even if it costs the company a little bit of money. In other words... A short-term sacrifice is good for the long term. So it's, it's trying to understand the game you're in, and it's trying to find that right balance. It's, it's, it's not so much science as it is art. And this is why these things require practice. I imagine that, uh, that a lot of, well, companies and people would say, well, we do that. We, you know, we, we, we do that. That's what we do. We're not uh, this cold uh, organization 
that's not nice to our customers because we wouldn't have any if we weren't. So this doesn't apply to me. That's like somebody saying that I have no room for improvement. I think I've, I think I'm very good at everything I do, and I think our numbers prove it. I mean, anybody who's that close-minded to believe that they've got everything figured out, run, run far away, run very far away. I'm speaking with Simon Sinek. He is a speaker and author of several books. His latest is called The Infinite Game. So, Simon, again, where is the pivot? Where do you make the? How do you make the change? from your finite thinking to infinite thinking, if you've never done it before, what's the toe-in-the-water step that gets you to move into what you're talking about? As I said before, those, those five practices, there's uh, working to advance a just cause, which first we have to know what our just cause is. What is, what is a, uh, a vision of the future so idealistic that it, for all practical purposes we will never achieve it, but we will commit our lives to helping advance towards that cause, you know, like the founding of the United States. Our founding fathers wrote in the Declaration of Independence that they imagined a world in which all men are created equal, endowed with these unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We'll never get there. We will never get to a point where all people are equal in our country, but we will die trying. That is the point. That is the point of a, of a vision, of an idealized future. That is the point of a just cause. And when we have a sense of just cause, it gives our work and our lives meaning. So the question is, what kind of world do we want to live in? And are we going to commit our lives, our jobs, our work, our, uh, the energy that we expend in our, in, our, in our friendships to help advance towards that just cause? What's ethical fading? Ethical fading is a phenomenon that psychologists uh, have written quite extensively about where people make unethical decisions believing that they are well within their framework of their own ethics. And there are many th things that make ethical fading happen. So for example, an example of ethical fading is what we saw in the extreme happen at Wells Fargo Bank, where 5,000 employees opened uh, three and a half million fake bank accounts uh, so that they could hit their financial goals, and yet very few of them thought that they were doing anything wrong. So there are a few things that make ethical fading happen. Um, one of them is uh, we can rationalize. You know, everyone's doing it. Got to put food on the table. It's what my boss wants. It's the industry standard. That's my favorite one. You know, it's <laughs> right, the right. You know, we, 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 can, we can rationalize this unethical behavior, believing that we're acting ethically. We just sort of have no choice. Another one is the overuse of euphemisms. We see this rampant in, in business where we use words to distance ourselves from our actions. So, for example, companies would never want to spy on their customers. That's unethical. But data mining, we love data mining. You know, so we see these kinds of things all the time. You know, we, we reduce headcounts as opposed to using people's livelihoods to balance the books. You know, we, we use, we use these, these, these slippery words to help distance ourselves from the impact of our decisions. And if we do these things too often, we hit the slippery slope, which is another condition of ethical fading. And uh, eventually we find ourselves in an organization or as individuals where we're acting unethically on a regular basis, thinking that nothing's wrong. Yeah. Until something breaks or there's a scandal or something goes horribly wrong. But it certainly seems that within the infinite game, as you've pointed out, there are lots of finite games going on. And, and this is kind of a, a, where you have to kind of go back and forth in your thinking. Yeah, I've got to get the plane out the door on time, but there's a bigger vision I also have to keep in mind. That's right. That's right. And it's about balancing those things. And an infinite-minded uh, player an infinite-minded employee, an infinite-minded customer, you know, we will 
understand that there's a bias, the bias for, uh, of people over profit. That doesn't necessarily mean 90-10. It could be 51-49, but there's a bias that we will sooner do the right thing to protect someone um, at short-term financial cost rather than sacrificing human beings for the short-term financial gain. I can see where, although this sounds like a great idea, that there would be some problems and some difficulties in adopting this infinite mindset because other people don't, for one thing. And even though we're playing in this infinite game, the world isn't wired that way. It, it, the world is a lot of finite games, and it's, so it's hard to make this shift. That's right. That's why it takes courage. Um, this isn't the way it always has been. Um, you know, the concept of, of mass layoffs, where companies on an annual basis will use people's livelihoods so they can meet their arbitrary projections, this practice did not exist um, as a standard of doing business in the United States prior to the 1980s. It just didn't exist. And the whole idea of um, uh, in, uh, incentivizing executives based on the, the, the performance of, a, of the stock price really wasn't the standard prior to the 1980s. And shareholder supremacy, where, pri where we prioritize the wants, needs, and desires of an outside constituency over customers and employees, really didn't exist prior to the 1980s and 90s. So it's only the past 30 or 40 years that we've seen this steady rise of finite thinking. And it's done tremendous damage to, uh, to our economy. It's done tremendous damage to the way we live our lives. It's, in, it's infiltrated politics. It's infiltrated hospitals. It's infiltrated education, where everybody's trying to win as opposed to help advance and protect uh, and improve. Um, and they pit themselves against each other. And, and we, the patients, we, the students, we, the, the voters, we, the customers, we, the employees, are the ones who suffer the most. But that is the nature of competition. That is the nature of capitalism, that we're, we're all trying to build a better mousetrap. And, and so, but, but that's always been the case. So what changed in the 80s and 90s? Well, there was a steady rise of, of finite thinking based on the thinking of, a, of an economist named Milton Friedman. Um, he theorized that the responsibility of business was to maximize profit within the bounds of the law. Well, what about ethics? You know, he, he, he treated business like it was one-dimensional. It was just about money. Business is dynamic. 100% of customers are people. 100% of employees are people. 100% of shareholders are people. Business is not just about money. People are an integral part of business. And yet that definition that he proposed was embraced by leaders at the time. And other uh, theories started to show up, like shareholder supremacy, like the use of mass layoffs, like a concept called rank and yank, where we rank the performance of our employees and promote the top 10% and fire the bottom 10%. These things do so much damage to a culture. They do so much damage to the way we feel when we show, to, show up to work. And what we find now is a time and age where employees are not loyal to co companies because, quite frankly, companies aren't loyal to employees. You know, there's an entire generation of young people who are growing up that bounce from job to job to job, and they're accused of not having loyalty. And yet when we talk about the gold watch that people used to get at the end of their careers, there's an entire generation that has no idea what I'm talking about when I talk about the gold watch. And this is because companies do not offer their employees loyalty. So why should employees offer it back? This is, this is not normal. And where are we? Is it getting better or worse? Well, I think we're in the middle of it. The fact that, that people like me, that people even want to buy my books or interview me on podcasts, I think is a sign that, that, that we're moving in the right direction. You know, I shouldn't have a career. You know, I, I talk about trust and cooperation. There should be no demand for my work. 
But there is. If I were talking about these things in the 80s and 90s, they would, you wouldn't want to talk to me. So, so I think we're, we're moving in, a, in the right direction. It's a slow uh, and bumpy road, but uh, I, I'm optimistic for the future. As I said in the beginning, this is really a different way of looking at how we li- live our lives and how businesses and people interact, and, and, and it makes you think. Simon Sinek has been my guest. He is a speaker and author. His latest book is called The Infinite Game, and you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. Appreciate you being here, Simon. Thanks. You're welcome, Michael. Thanks very much, and thanks for your help and giving me a, a platform to share my ideas. Really appreciate it. As a parent, I look at my kids and their lives, and they seem so different in so many ways compared to when I was a kid. And parenting also seems different. And I'm not sure why, and I'm not sure it's all good. And someone who agrees that it's not all good is Madeline Levine. She is a psychologist who's written several books. Her latest is called Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World. Hi, Madeline. Welcome to Something You Should Know. Uh, Hi, Mike. Thank you very much. So if you take a snapshot of parenting and kids today, as it compares to parenting and kids in the past, where are we? Are we stricter? Are we more lenient? Where, where, where are we? I think we're much more intensive in our concept about what it takes to raise a child. And I think that has some positives associated with it, but I think it actually has more negatives associated with it. So parenting now is a, a kind of profession of cultivation. It's intensive it's expensive, and it has built into it the assumption that what's best for children is this kind of constant oversight, management, protection, accommodation, and there are reasons why I think those things are not in the best interest of children. And what are the ramifications of that? What is that kind of parenting, do you think, doing to kids? I think and not just me, the World Health Organization says one in three kids has an anxiety disorder. That is, when I started writing, it was one in five. Things have not stayed the same. They've gotten worse. And people know that their kids are really, really stressed. They know that. Um, And so I think what parents are doing is trying to accommodate to anxiety in their kids in the wrong ways. So where is the stress coming from in the kids? Why are kids so stressed? They're stressed because, you know, there's this culture of, like, being outstanding at everything. Um, It's not enough to be an A student. You're supposed to be an A-plus student or a straight-A student. Uh, School, it's from four hours of homework a night. It's from the fact that parents are under the impression, as schools are feeding into it, that um, unless you go get straight A's and you go to a really great selective school, like you're doomed. I, I was talking to a woman this morning who was telling me about trying to talk to her kid who's a junior about he doesn't have to make the decision yet about school. He's worried about getting into Stanford. I'm in, you know, on the West Coast. He's worried about getting into Stanford. And I'm coaching her on, well, you know, it's, you don't have to worry about it quite yet, and there are lots of schools out there. And, and the kid says, you know, great, Mom, way to kill my dreams. 
so kids now have bought into a mythology. I think it's a mythology about what it takes to be successful. So the pressure comes from not enough sleep. A teenager needs, what, nine hours of sleep? They get on average six. It means they're sleep-deprived all the time. Um, there is a constant drumbeat of performance. For young children, this is not what kids need. They need the time and the energy to explore, and they absolutely have to have titrated experiences of disappointment and failure and challenge um, if they're going to master that as they move into adulthood. And they don't have that opportunity anymore. So what does that look like? What is that, what does that childhood look like that it isn't now? So here's what I think it would look like. I spoke to 600 people last night, and I asked if there was anybody in the audience who had never had their heart broken. 600 people, one person raised their hand, right? Um, you will and your child will have their heart broken at some point, and how do they prepare for that? They prepare for it by having small, normal developmental experience of anxiety that we're not rushing in to accommodate to. I mean, the number of times somebody sits in my office and says, I can't stand to see my kid unhappy, my answer is always the same, which is you're in the wrong profession. You have got to be able to tolerate your child being unhappy, because how else are they going to learn that it's not the end of the world? Um, and so I, th I think what it would look like would be kids having more normal developmental experiences um, that they have to manage with their parents kind of standing on the sidelines, and that's not what's happening now. Yeah, well, to those parents, this is normal. Your, your definition of normal isn't their definition of normal. You know, I'm not, I'm not sure about that, Mike, because when I speak, um, there is a great deal of agreement. And it's not just me. I mean, you know, it's all my colleagues who are speaking and the people who are doing research. There is, in the very beginning when I was interested in this and writing about it, I got a lot of pushback, like, oh, Dr. Levine's trying to, you know, lower the bar uh, because we want our kids to do really well, and she wants to lower the bar, which is always funny to me because, you know, I'm a Jewish PhD uh, from New York, married to what my own family calls a real doctor. Um, so we're not known for low bars, really, culturally. Um, and it wasn't about lowering the bar, but there was pushback. That's 15 years ago. Not anymore. There's no pushback anymore. There's only the idea that how could I possibly enact what you're saying when everybody else in the community sees it differently, sees it in this intrusive way, and I can't swim against the stream? So the notion that there's something wrong that can be remediated if I keep this kind of oversight on my child, I think in the book I have this example of, um, a kid who's taking calculus, and the father is graphing every test that the kid takes. And the kid is has trichotillomania, which is he's pulling out his eyebrows, he's pulling out his eyelashes and his hair. And when I see them, they say, he'll stop that when calculus is over, and that is no longer tracking every grade. But he won't stop it because that's the way he's learned 
to manage anxiety. And and by the way, he's taking calculus, and yet his father doesn't trust him to do the graphing. So, <laughs> right, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of crazy. And, you know, people say things like, well, they can sleep when they get into Harvard. No, they can't. You know, you can't undo um, easily. You can't undo easily these kinds of lost opportunities to learn how to manage on your own. And I don't think anybody disagrees with that anymore. I just think that the fear is so great that it gets in the way of people being able to effectuate it in their homes. And so what's the advice if you're a parent listening to you and you're saying, you know, here's the problem, here's all yeah. this anxiety, all right, right. But, but I don't know what it means to parent the way you're talking about. What, what is it I do or stop doing? There are two words I always tell parents. You have to listen and you have to be curious. And which parents aren't because they're so busy micromanaging. And li- listening is not sitting there for 10 seconds listening to your kid while you formulate, you know, your response to it. No kid has ever walked into my office, and I've been doing this 35 years, and said, you know, my parents just listen too much. No kid has ever said that. Plenty of kids, most kids have said, my parents talk too much. So I think, I think, I think parents start with the exercise because it's not that threatening of could you just listen a little bit? Could you just be curious a little bit about what your kids are thinking? Um, because part of growing up is, you know, sort of trying out different ideas. Don't get excited when your kid says, I don't know, marijuana is the best thing in the world. Listen to them. See how they're thinking. Uh, don't jump in too quickly. And remember something about your own experience of growing up. Often ask, what do you remember most about growing up? And it's a question audiences like because they come, you know, they go back to childhood and they think about climbing up a tree or hiding from their parents, whatever. And remembering that your own childhood allowed you a degree of freedom that you are not allowing your children and that the consequences of that may not show up when your kid is young, um, but it will show up later. You know, this whole thing about emerging adulthood, like where did that come from? I didn't learn that in graduate school. This year I put six kids into emerging adulthood programs because they just didn't have basic skills. So I tell parents, you know, let have your kid have a job when they're in high school. My kids work construction in high school. That was a good job. It's hard. You stand on your feet. You're responsible to your work, co-workers. Let your kid have chores around the house. Every kid in America knows how to get out of loading the dishwasher. And that's simply to say, oh, I have to go study for my AP history test, right? And then mom, who's been working all day long, says, don't worry, honey, I'll do it for you. Um, If you want your kid to grow up and be part of a community, you're the first community. So let them have chores, make them responsible, be interested in them, be curious about them, and talk to other people about your level of anxiety. Um, Because if one in three kids has an anxiety disorder, by the way, one in three adults also has an anxiety disorder.
So I can imagine parents listening to you and saying, well, wait a minute. I try to listen to my kid. I'll say, how was school? Fine. What'd you learn today? Nothing. Right. I'm listening, but there's nothing coming. And then when you say, I'll also, and then I'll let you comment, give my kids freedom. If I gave my kids the freedom they wanted, they'd be playing Uh video games every waking moment. And Uh I'm not going to allow that. In answer to your first one, um, nothing fine. First of all, you're talking about a teenager, right? If you ask your 8-year-old or a 7-year-old how school was, uh, they're usually pretty enthusiastic. And it's normative for a kid to uh, say nothing. But that's, that's okay. That You know, knowing what is developmentally appropriate, like for a teenager to say nothing, that's, that's fine. And at least you're not standing at the door ambushing them with how'd you do in school today or what grade did you get. So your um, persistent interest is good. And I promise you that at some point you'll start getting an answer to that question, but not in early or middle adolescence. That's just not the way those kids do things. And your second example of they'd be playing videos all day this is not to be, in, none of this is to be interpreted as an abdication of responsibility towards your children. It is not healthy for your kid to play video games all day. So that's a place where you actually do have to intervene and set rules and, and boundaries. Your job is to keep your kids safe. And sort of a realistic appraisal, this business about kids can't go out and it's too dangerous out there. It's unrealistic. It's, it's the safest time to be a kid in America. Letting your kid play video games all day, so you should let them out and you should let them play. Playing video games all day, not healthy for your kids. So that's the place where you have to set limits. That's your job as a parent. That whole notion of not letting your kids out, like when we were kids, you know, and Mm -hmm. parents said, uh, you know, we'll see you at dinner, off you go, and you would go around on your bike with the neighborhood kids, and you'd go far. You could go far as long as you were home on time. This is one of the things that that really strikes me as so odd, and and what I was trying to get at earlier is where, where did that come from? Because parents didn't used to think about danger the way they think about it now. I don't think it's so much income equality. There, there's something else going on that, that caused that change. Well, um, yes, and I don't, I don't feel like I have all the answers to that for sure. I don't think anybody has all the answers to that. We've had this huge cultural shift, um, and I, I do think it's tied to a loss of trust in institutions in the world in the 24-hour news cycle, which makes it look like at any moment all hell can break loose. Um, I used to, before I wrote about child development, I had a couple books on uh, media. And my mentor was a guy named George Gerbner, who, at the Annenberg School of Communication, who coined the term mean world syndrome. And that, that was long before the 24-hour news cycle. And he had done a bunch of research there that showed that people who were exposed to more rather than less media uh, felt the world was more dangerous. And 
so now if you're wa- if you're watching um and it's on constantly it looks like the world is profoundly dangerous at all times and i i think that news cycle without the attendant skills to evaluate what you're seeing um has made people extremely fearful and i and i do think community which had a salutary effect like we're all in this together um has dissipated so the world looks scary i mean how many times have you seen those images of kids walking out of schools crying with their hands up I, it, it it's terrifying and the fact that it is not normative and it doesn't happen all the time but i think people are on such high alert and kids are on high alert you know kids have to see those same constant images um that that get eyeballs because after all eyeballs are what television and and most media are all about um makes it seem like it's a very mean world when in fact all all rates of violent crime are down and yet you wouldn't know that based on the way a lot of parents parent because there's a lot of this you know you can't play outside unless someone's watching you you got to play in the backyard or you can't walk to school uh, on your own. There is this fear that just didn't used to be. I think the media has been irresponsible in constantly replaying disturbing imagery over and over again. And I totally understand that, like I said before, you know, that's that's all about eyeballs. But um, it has had a really miserable social effect, cultural effect. Um, that's not insignificant. It's not like saying, oh, so what? So you don't let your kid ride to school. Big deal. It's, it's not that simple. I mean, that's, you've got to look at the causes of the causes, right? The cause is, um, well, uh, I see this stuff on television. Well, you know, what's underneath that? The 24-hour news cycle, a lack of community is underneath that, a sense of isolation, um, the Surgeon General says we're having an epidemic of loneliness. It, I think what the media tends to do is just look at the cause of things and not the causes of the causes, which is really where the action is at. And so when you understand that this comes from the media and the media is only interested in eyeballs and that's really not in the best interest of your child um, and you've chosen a community uh, that you could be more active in or talk to other parents. I remember when I was raising my kids, my kids are grown. Um, we all got together in the community and agreed, all the moms, we all agreed we would look out for each other's kid. Um, does that happen? Did that happen in your community? Not in a formal way, no. Uh-huh. I think because everybody in the neighborhood knew each other and knew to look out for the kids, but... Um... No, but it, I think the net result is the same. My dad was a cop, and when I grew up, everybody on the block knew that that was the threat. If And my father was the kindest person in the world. If you smoke behind the house or get in the car, you're going to have to see Officer Levine, right? And And he never did anything to anybody, but it was the statement was, we've got eyes on you. It doesn't have to be my eyes, but we're paying attention to what you do. And 
that was part of the safety of the community. And what people think is safety now, which is this constant intervention, is anything but, because when your child actually runs into somebody that is threatening, maybe somewhere in his life, he won't have any skills for being able to differentiate the the person who's just regular, which is the vast majority of people he'll meet, and somebody who might be threatening. He has no experience. He has no practice in that. And I think kids need practice in that. Well, to me, you're preaching to the choir. And you know what's interesting? When I talk to parents and other people about this, I never come across the person who says, no, 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 my kids need more helicoptering. <laughs> my kids need more things scheduled on their day. I, I, I don't hear that, but clearly there are people who must believe that. And frankly, I like your message better. Madeline Levine has been my guest. She's a psychologist and author of several books. Her latest is called Ready or Not, Preparing Our Kids to Thrive in an Uncertain and Rapidly Changing World. And there is a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you. Thank you, Madeline. Thank you so much. For decades now, people have been talking about how we're moving towards becoming a cashless society, that we won't need to have cash in our pockets anymore. And for health reasons, uh, that couldn't come soon enough. According to a report in Scientific America, the dollar bills in your wallet (laughs) are contaminated with the grossest things in the world. And the fact that lower denomination bills, 5, 10s, and 20s, circulate more, it makes them really gross. Here's what the study found was on your paper money. E. coli bacteria, which can make you sick and make you go to the bathroom a lot. Cocaine. Heroin. Yeast. Yeast is growing on your dollar bills. There's also mold. The flu virus. If it's humid or accompanied by mucus, (laughs) it can survive on your money for 17 days. There's DNA from various animals. The white rhino included, according to the report. And then there's fecal matter. (laughs) So, So after you touch money, wash your hands. And that is something you should know. And when you're done washing your hands, share this podcast with someone you know. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know.